Avina Malkano, our Father, King, Lord, thank you for this time to gather together and study your word. I pray that you would give us ears to hear and wisdom and understanding as we uh, pierce the revelation that you have given us. Lord, I pray that as we discuss these events that will take place in the future, that we will be encouraged to know that your judgment will come and that you will bring reward and punishment to those you have chosen to, Lord. And I pray that each of us would be filled with the, with the knowledge of our saving faith, that we know that we will be with you in eternity forever, Lord, experiencing the blessings that come from knowing you and not the judgment that comes from cursing you. And I pray this B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. All right. Uh, Millie's saying the link's not working yet. Try refreshing it and see if it works. Hello to Bob. If it doesn't, I'll try posting again, and I'll fix it later if we need to. So tonight, uh, as you can see online, those you can see, but here in person, we're just going to finish Chapter 16. So I decided I did not want to try to handle uh, who the identity of Babylon in particular in Chapter 17 right now. I'll let Rabbi Glenn deal with that next week. Although we are going to be touching on Babylon in a brief way here in chapter 16. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 17 through the end of the passage. Uh, but before we do that, I just kind of want to do a very, very brief recap of chapter 16. Um, I want to spend a few minutes, if we can, on the topic of Armageddon as well. So chapter 16, right, contains the bowls of wrath. And we see the, the sort of the control verse or the uh, title verse that kind of gives us an indication what this chapter is all about, right, is Revelation 16, verse 1, which I'm going to just pull up here and read again for you guys. And we'll just do the NIV because that's what popped up. Um, then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. So what we have here in this first verse is this loud voice from the temple, which we're actually going to see the, uh, the loud voice identified here later in this chapter, um, but the voice of God saying, go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. And so these bowls, I mean, all these things are connected with judgment, right? The, the seals, the trumpets, the bowls, right? All of Revelation, one of the great themes is judgment coming upon the earth. It's not the only theme, thank the Lord, but it is one of the main themes and the sovereignty of God. So God from his throne as king of kings and lord of lords declares this final sort of set of judgments. Now there will be other judgments kind of coming, but a, not a final set of judgments, I should say a final set of plagues. Right? There's going to be more suffering coming afterwards, but this completes these three sets of seven. Right, We've had seven seals, we've had seven trumpets, now we're having these seven bowls. And what we've seen as we move from one set to the other and as we go through them is this intensification. Right, Way back when we started talking about the seals and the trumpets when I was with you guys, I really hammered home this point of this idea of intensification going on, as well as a connection to the plagues of Egypt. And so what we see in this chapter is something even more, you know, the, the seals were pretty terrible, right? The trumpets were very terrible, but these bowls have been incredibly terrible. And the sixth bowl in particular sort of isn't as terrible as the rest. It's almost a prelude leading up to the seventh and final bowl. This final set of seven, this final uh, bowl going on here. 
But all of these are connected to God's wrath, his judgment being poured out on the earth. And those who are alive at this time are those who are wicked, who have truly decided, right, they've taken the mark of the beast, they've um, cursed God, and we'll see at the end of this chapter, it ends with them cursing God. Um, and they are experiencing the full wrath of God, which is a terrible sight to behold. You don't want to experience God's wrath. And hello to Mary Ann as well, and Brad, I'm seeing online here. So, so that kind of is the, the leading verse. And so I want to skip down. I'm not going to go through each of the bowls again. But I want to skip down specifically to what's connected to this, the sixth bowl. And Rabbi Glenn, I think, last week did a phenomenal job explaining verse 15. Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is one who stays awake and remains clothed, right? The importance of being spiritually awake, spiritually clothed. I know something that he hit pretty hard last week. We're going to hit that again in our application because it is... You know, this interlude here is, is so important. Um, but it says, Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. And so Armageddon is, you know, like in popular culture when it comes to the Bible, like, you know, you talk to people on the street, they're only going to know certain maybe stories or things from the Bible. They may have some knowledge of Moses, right, from cartoons or the Ten Commandments. They have some knowledge of Jesus on the cross, you know, and, and maybe some basic understanding of like uh, the golden rule and things like that. When it comes to your average person on the street or in popular culture, I think Armageddon is one of the few terms or words that they've heard of, and there's this sort of intense fashion, fascination with it, both in secular culture and then, of course, especially in Christian culture, right, in, in the church community. Um, and, you know, Armageddon, as it's related here, we don't get a ton of details. Now, obviously, the term itself is connected to a much wider concept, this idea of a final battle, right, taking place, which has been dramatized in all sorts of books, like uh, uh, the Left Behind Time series, you know, and all sorts of other books and uh, uh, TV shows have, and movies have touched on this and played with these themes and, and subverted it and all that kind of stuff. But when we really start to examine it, you know, there is a lot of stuff related to Armageddon, this idea of this battle that is debated. Um, and so I really like Fanning's article because Fanning's article, or the passage I, I put from his commentary, I should say, it's about three pages long. He talks about the two most common uh, locations to where this may happen. Uh, one of them, of course, is the Plain of Megiddo, which I think Rabbi Glenn talked about with you guys last week. But he has this, after he kind of goes through all the explanations and explains to you, you know, what different commentators think and why, he has, I think, a really profound thing to say about it that I just kind of want to read and paraphrase a bit of and comment on. And so he writes, what some interpreters say about Armageddon in verse, six, verse 16 is representative of how they understand the imagery of the bold judgments in general. Just as with the trumpet judgments, we must ask what realities in the world of the final days or of any time do these portrayals represent? Are they symbols for spiritual or psychological pain of God's final judgment that he will exact in spiritual terms only? And he goes on to say that this understanding of reading the bowls 
And Armageddon in purely spiritual language is what a lot of very popular commentators do, like Beale. And you find this in a lot of churches today. You know, we sort of, and this is why I want to talk about this, is in our circles, we sort of take for granted, well, yeah, it's a literal battle, right? And these are literal bulls of wrath. And way back when we talked about that literal temple being rebuilt, and Jesus literally, we're going to talk about reigning, Yeshua reigning for a thousand years. We sort of assume all these things as literal. And, you know, if you travel in the circles, um, I do, and hopefully you do as well, that's the sort of position of a lot of people. You know, Messianic Jewish, dispensationalist, uh, especially. But looking even outside of our little circle, which is fairly little when it comes to, you know, God's community as a whole, most people don't read these passages as super literal. Um, and we kind of get, we kind of think about that maybe in terms of like the 144,000, right? I spent a whole lot of time on that. Um, and I've talked about that a little bit when it comes to these bowl judgments and the seal judgments and the trumpets, the idea of, you know, maybe these are all repeating. But this idea here that these bowls shouldn't be taken literally, that Armageddon, whether you argue about where it takes place, whether it's in the plains of Megiddo, whether it's on a mountain, whether it starts uh, in this specific place and then expands to all Israel or Jerusalem, the idea of it being literal, I think, isn't necessarily up for debate, although it is debated very hotly. So he goes on to say, your view of Armageddon will determine your view of the bulls and sort of all these judgments in general. Are these meant to be literal? Um, and he comments and says, you know, understanding these judgments as spiritual in nature isn't completely wrong because there is a spiritual component to um, these judgments, right? In other words, what I mean is, we're told over and over again in Revelation, in all of God's word, that judgment comes upon those who are not saved, those who are alive at this time, because of the spiritual nature of their hearts, right? They have rebelled against God. There's a spiritual issue, a very serious one, going on in their lives, right? They have chosen to rebel against God, and in the face of God's power and majesty, the witnesses, everything else, they have chosen to continue to rebel. And so there is a spiritual judgment taking place here, but these things are happening on earth in the realm of the physical as well, right? And that's something we need to keep in mind. And so he goes on to say, and this is again why I think this is important, is when we look at, we, we use a term in Revelation, we talked about this in the beginning, this idea of typology, right? There's like these types, there's these patterns, right? We've talked about different patterns we've seen in Scripture up until this point, right? And a lot of what me and Rabbi Glenn are doing here every week is going, okay, so when you read this passage here, you got to understand the Jewish context. We need to go back and see this pattern of how this connects to the plagues in Egypt or see how this connects to Isaiah, or Zechariah, right? Especially last week, Rabbi Glenn was like, we got to go back to the text, right? And he's pulling all these passages, rightly so, showing how they connect. But when we, when we think about how we connect the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's a lot of things that go on in that. But a lot of people, particularly those uh, of a supersessionist, of a replacement theology perspective, only understand these connections as spiritual. 
right? And this is where their thinking starts. And understanding it as spiritual, that's how they can get to a place to say, well, you know, it's talking about a temple in this chapter of Revelation, but maybe it isn't really a literal temple. Maybe it's just the community of God. And it's talking about Armageddon here, which seems to be a literal battle, right? And you go back to the Old Testament passages, which Rabbi Glenn talked only, I mean, there's so many, okay? We could, he could have spent another two hours on that last week. Um, you know, well, maybe these are meant to be a spiritual warfare as well. And so they make this judgment call to say, we should understand these things as spiritual only, and they miss the boat. They miss the big picture of what's going on here. Um, we need to really, and again, I, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, okay, for the most part. I think most of you are tracking with me, understanding the bulls as literal. You might be saying, Rabbi Jerry, why are you even wasting time on this? You got to understand, though, you know, I was, I, I was having a conversation with somebody who I know to be a believer. They're, they go to a uh, Baptist church. They were talking to me because, you know, they, uh, their particular pastor is a dispensational, very pro you know, Messianic Judaism and stuff, and they are too. You know, they have Messianic Jewish friends. And we were getting into a whole discussion. They just said, I just don't understand how we don't read these things as the church, you know, replacement theology. You know, they said, I've been watching a lot of YouTube from these scholars, and it really seems to make sense. And we're bouncing around all these passages and all this stuff. And we got onto this topic of, and, I, and this is one of the points I directed this person to, was you have to understand that, you know, just as Yeshua's first coming was literal, right? You know, it's physical. He physically died. So it will be with his second coming. There is a physical manifestation. We should understand these things as, as literal. It just makes the most sense with how we see prophecy being fulfilled. And I think that's just something we need to keep in mind when we uh, read about this stuff. You know, again, and Fanny talks about this as well. You know, Messiah Yeshua's sacrifice, right, on the cross was spiritual, right? He spiritually provides atonement for us, right? You know, we're filled with it, with the Holy Spirit. But it's also physical, right? He literally physically died. He suffered. He truly died and truly rose from the dead. And so we need to understand the physical reality and the spiritual reality of what's going on. Um, and so that's just the point I want to make going back to this stuff is, again, just understand that these are physical, these are literal events taking place, um, and that there's a physical dimension to them and a spiritual dimension as well. And it's not choosing between one or the other, but we have to understand both of these things, which again is part of the reason why what we see in Revelation, we see us, we go from heaven to earth, right? And then earth to heaven and then heaven to earth, right? And in this chapter, we begin where? In heaven with the throne of God saying, pour out these bowls of wrath. That is a spiritual thing going on there. But these, and again, not to say that they're literal bulls, right, in the sense of they're like, you know, little physical bulls, but the plagues that are described in this passage are very physical. You know, when it talks about, we're going to talk about the earthquake tonight, it's a literal earthquake. When it talks about hail, it's literal hail. You know, when it talks about the Euphrates drying up, which Rabbi Glenn talked with you guys about last week, leading up to this final battle, that for most believers today is spiritualized because the battle's spiritualized. It's a spiritual battle. It's a, the Euphrates won't literally dry up to make it more advantageous for military. It's a spiritual aspect. No, it's literal, just like the rest of scripture has been literal. Will it 
play out exactly as we think, right? You know, how will it dry up? What is the mechanism in which it dries up? We don't know that. But we do know is what God says he's going to do, he does. Um, and so I just want to get to that point. Any questions on that so far? Again, Fanning does a little you know, nicer job of going into this with more detail. I don't want to just read you three pages of his stuff, though. So, uh, but just want to make that point. So with that being said and understanding that there's a spiritual and physical reality and keeping that in mind, let's pick up in verse 17. With the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done. Powerful statement. Unlike with the seals or the trumpets, there is no pause or interlude between the sixth and seventh bowls of wrath. Right? This is something, again, you know, there's a lot of things I tell you to kind of keep in mind and be juggling in your head. There's a lot of stuff. But we want also want to think about the structure of this letter, right, of the book of Revelation. Right? And so we've seen a pattern up until this point where we get to the sixth, right, whether it's a seal, right, or the sixth trumpet. And then there's like this interlude, right? There's a pause. And then we go to the seventh, right? And we see the seventh, right, is usually way more intense than the previous. Now, if you really remember what I was talking about like four months ago, I argue that the seventh seal, the seventh trumpet, and the seventh bowl are actually describing the same event, which is a slightly controversial opinion, but not insanely controversial. Um, and that's why I think they're sep separated out and not here because of at the end. But notice again, you know, there's no prelude. It just goes straight into the seventh uh, bowl. And in a sense, the sixth bowl is sort of leading up to this. Um, now, all these bowls, right, affect the entire earth, right? Verse 1 tells us that, right? They're God's wrath being poured out on all the earth. But this bowl in particular is poured out into the atmosphere, right? It's poured into the air because that is where this plague begins. Like the beginning of this chapter, a voice from the temple is heard. Now, this temple is clearly in heaven. Remember, I. I said that, if you remember way back again, I'm, I'm doing a lot of callbacks here. It's been a minute since I've been with you guys, so i got to do all my callbacks. So way back when we talked about arguing about whether it's a literal temple on earth being rebuilt or not, I said that John really always specifies in some way, shape, or form in the context, whether he's talking about something on earth or something in heaven. And here we can see once again that specificity because he says, this is coming out from the throne in heaven, right? It's very clear this is the temple in heaven, God's temple. And so who sits on the throne but God, okay? And the voice of God is audibly heard throughout the earth declaring this work is finished. Reminds us of Messiah's shoe on the cross. Reminds us of the seventh day of creation when God rested, right? These motifs, this pattern is meant to be seen and understood. Imagine that, though. You know, again, this wasn't just, you know, something, again, there's this spiritual and physical, right? You know, it, it seems as if the voice of God in some way will be audibly heard at this time after this bowl is poured out saying, it is finished. You know, imagine the voice of God crying that out, you know, shouting that, you know, booming the voice of God from it. You know, I think again, and we're going to go back to this because there's motifs of this here, of God on Mount Sinai, right, with a voice that Hebrews tells us that made our people tremble so hard that we said, Moses, 
Go out. Be our you know, intermediary. We can't bear to listen to the voice of God anymore. We can't handle this. It's too intense. It's too much. Do this for us. The voice of God booms. It is finished. Verse 1 had promised that the Lord's wrath would be poured out on the earth. And with this final plague, this judgment from the king of kings has now occurred. Again, the big theme of one of the big themes of Revelation, God's sovereignty, right? He is the king of kings. And here in all of these plague judgments, we are seeing God on his throne in control. He says when it starts and he says when it stops. You know, it's not Satan or the people on the earth telling God it's finished. God says when he's done, right? I guarantee the people on the earth at this time would really want God to have been done probably after the first seal, okay? First seal's enough, right? Um, of course, it isn't because they don't repent. Um, you know, but after so much, you know, Dianu, Dianu, it's enough, right? This is enough. No, now it's enough. So he now says it's done. So what is this great and terrible wrath of God in the seventh bowl? We read in verse 18. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. I always think of that song we sing from Shema uh, about that. It has those lyrics in it. Great song. I don't remember the name of it offhand. Um, if you remember in the chat, I know we've got some people from our worship team in there. Uh, you know, let me know. But um, it says, no earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. So unlike the quakes described in the seventh seal and in the seventh bowl, and really all the plagues up until this point, this one in particular is given this special sort of phrasing saying that nothing like this has ever occurred in the history of the earth. Powerful statement. So this awesome and final judgment recalls the Lord descending on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, 16 through 19. These events are also like the seventh seal and trumpet. Now, either these events were repeated or all three are describing the same event, which is my personal view, Fanning's view as well, the idea of telescopic linear progression, which we will not go into tonight. Go back to my notes if you want to go into that. Um, but whether or not you see this as a repeat or, um, you know, a, a series of plagues, right, this culminating, this is it. This is the big kahuna, right? This is the, the ultimate, you know, final bowl being poured out here. That phrase describing these events as having never occurred on earth before brings to mind apocalyptic prophecies in Daniel 12.1, Mark 13.19, Matthew 24.21. Joel 2.2, 2, and Jeremiah 37, among others, where it talks about in this day it will be like something that has never been seen before. You've never seen anything like this. You know, we've had some pretty terrible earthquakes, which have led to even worse tsunamis, which 
is maybe what's being described here later on in this passage. You know, entire uh, uh, nations, you know, hurricanes and things like that. Thunder, lightning has caused so much devastation throughout the history of the earth, you know, and it doesn't matter how advanced your people is, right? You know, like Florida, right, gets smacked by hurricanes. Doesn't matter how many times it happens, you know, technology may improve, but houses get destroyed anytime a serious hurricane blows through, right? People die. Property, billions of dollars of property is destroyed. Many people die. Um, I think of the earthquakes that have happened in the Middle East. Many, many people die. You know, the tsunamis that have happened in the world. Many, many people die. You know, we've come up with a lot of technology that lets us do lots of great things. You know, we have, we have lights that push away darkness, wonderful stuff. We haven't found an anti-earthquake device yet or an anti-tsunami or anti-lightning, really. You know, the best we can do with lightning is lightning rods to redirect the lightning. We can't stop the lightning, but we take advantage of of physics to try to move it. Of course, if God wants lightning to strike somewhere, it doesn't matter how nice your lightning rod is. Again, we can't thwart the will of God. So this great earthquake with no equal also seems to be similar to Ezekiel 38, 18 through 20, with the battle of many nations against Israel, the battle against God, right? Again, seems to be a literal battle. Literal battle, literal earthquake, literal reign of Jesus, literal temple, literal, literal, okay? That's my, that's our big push here as we go through Revelation is, you know, understand these events taking place on earth literally where it makes sense to. Um, you know, again, there's spiritual language. You know, I don't think Satan appears necessarily as a physical dragon, okay? But I do believe there will be a manifestation of a literal false prophet, a literal antichrist, and Satan will be in some way, his presence felt in a very powerful physical way at that time. So any questions so far before we go on to verse 19? Terrible earthquake. Don't want to experience it. So verse 19, which is going to be our controversial verse for tonight, um, describes some of the after effects of this terrible earthquake that happens. It says, the great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. And hello online to Jim and uh, Helena. And happy eighth night of Hanukkah as well. So I really want you to see this verse because we're going to be dissecting it into parts. This is kind of like a three-part verse. Or if you want to use your fancy grammar terms, you have sort of three clauses here. We have this statement about the great city being split into three parts. And then the next part of the verse, and the cities of the nations collapsed. And then the final part of the verse, God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. And so we're going to take each part and kind of look at it. So the first question is, what is the great city in this verse? Well, this is a big debate among scholars. And a lot of how you've been answering a lot of your questions leading up to this passage will inform how you read this. Idealists like Beale see this not as a literal city, right? Not a literal battle, not literal cups. So this definitely is not a literal city. But it really represents all of sinful humanity. 
Others who I've referenced, like Osborne and Mount, see the city here as Babylon or Rome, connecting it to the second part of the verse, which is, which is very reasonable. Um, but most dispensationalists, like Fanning, see this city as Jerusalem, which is actually what I believe as well. Now, I was actually asking Rabbi Glenn about this two days ago. I said, what do you think this great city is? And he was telling me, I don't think it's Jerusalem. He says, I think it's a different city, maybe. Uh, but he says, maybe Babylon. So I'll have to see if my argument is convincing to Rabbi Glenn, uh, but he may come back and, and argue this uh, a little bit uh, next week. But um, he would agree, though. I know he would agree with me. There is a literal city going on here. So, um, but I believe it's. I do believe it's uh, Jerusalem. But I'm not going to be dogmatic about it. If I find out it's not Jerusalem, my theology doesn't fall apart. Okay. Um, but let's kind of let's kind of work this out, and I think it's a good exercise. So why do I think it's Jerusalem? Why Jerusalem? Why not Babylon? Why not non-literal? Well, in Revelation 11.8, the two witnesses are identified as dying in the great city. And in that verse it says, which is symbolically says, described as Sodom and Egypt. But in that same verse, Revelation 11.8, it says, it's also the city where their Lord was crucified. Okay. Now, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to put two and two together here, right? The two witnesses are followers of God Most High, okay? The city where their Lord is crucified, okay, we know who they're talking about. It's Messiah Yeshua, okay? And we know the city, right, is Jerusalem. <laughs> Rabbi Glenn says, you better believe I'll argue. He says, ha. Huh. So let's start with that. So this identification with the death of Messiah Yeshua makes it clear it is Jerusalem. But this does not necessarily mean it has to be Jerusalem here in these verses. You know, he could be talking about another great city going on here. However, and this is where I, I start to really, I feel like it really connects to Jerusalem, is if we believe that the sixth bowl, with the Euphrates being dried up, is preparing for a worldwide war against Israel and Jerusalem specifically, this city being Jerusalem fits with the context of the sixth bowl. This is part of why maybe there isn't an interlude right here, is it connects these things together. Additionally, with the interlude of Revelation 14, making a mention of judgment coming outside the city, it seems the focus of this great battle is on Jerusalem and Israel. Zechariah 14, 4 through 5, also specifically mentions the Mount of Olives will be split in half as well during the time of Messiah's return during this battle. Now, Rabbi Glenn is already arguing, not arguing, but commenting on this. I think he may be conflating two passages, but they're not speaking of one in the same situation. This also goes down, and we were talking about this earlier, is, is the Battle of Magog and Gog the same battle? Or is that two different battles? So these things uh, could also be uh, separate and different connected. Um, but basically, the other major reason I could go, there's some other passages we could go to, particularly Ezekiel 5, 1 through 13, which has Israel has God symbolically promising to divide Israel into th sorry Jerusalem into three parts, which is very similar to what's going on here, but maybe in a more physical way. Also seems to be connecting here. Um, but I basically understand this: the great city to be Jerusalem, the cities of the nations, which are also, you know, the great city is promised to be split in three, but the cities of the nations, and this is the big part. Um, that we should definitely take away from this, and I think is without argument, because it's, it's very clear. It says, what does it say about the cities of the nations? They will collapse, right? 
And this isn't just like a little collapse, right? Um, this is like the collapse, as in physically, you know, a worldwide earthquake causes physical collapse. And again, I think there is a spiritual dimension here as well, okay? You know, just think about it. You know, we're going to talk about hail the size of 100 pounds sitting in the earth here in a moment, okay? Just picture for a moment the earth being struck with this plague, okay? Earthquakes that have never been seen in the history of mankind, not just in like Timbuktu or China or, you know, in California, you know, or places where you saw throughout the entire world, hail, lightning, and thunder throughout the entire earth. It would bring about not just physical collapse, but economic and perhaps even political collapse as well. Um, but I do think there's a distinction because these are clauses. It's interesting to me that it describes a great city as being split into three, but all the other cities as collapsing. And so that's part of where I rest my argument as well. And this, this also kind of meshes with how Jerusalem is described at this time. It's going to be under insane persecution, but it will not be completely destroyed. It will be overrun, right? And they are going to experience plagues and, you know, there's judgment coming and, and the armies of the earth are literally invading. Um, but it won't be totally destroyed. And again, that makes sense that there would be a distinction here. So what about this final part of the verse? Babylon the Great being remembered by God for his wrath. So like I said, I'm not going to try to identify tonight who or what Babylon the Great is. Okay? Um, I don't believe, I will say this, I'll play my cards a little bit here and say I don't believe there will be a literal Babylon, a city called Babylon, resurrected. Um, in the last days. Um, I think that is getting a little too hyper-literal. Um, but this definitely, but, you know, Babylon in the ancient world was seen as connected with, you know, one of the great, it, it was considered a powerful city. Um, and so it's indicative of a place of power for the secular world, right? Just as Rome was, right? And that's why some people see this as Rome. Again, I don't believe Rome will, I mean, there is a Rome today, right? You can go there. It is a shell of its former self. I don't believe that, you know, if the one, you know, a lot of people, again, you know, in their way of trying to make everything, you know, really shove it deeply into the holes here and make it work, they say, well, you know, I anticipate Rome will come back. And when that one world government happens, that uh, Babylon or Rome will be the seat of their power. And so this is about the coming judgment on that future Rome. I really think you're reaching a little too much here for that. Um, but we can understand, I think Babylon, the great, is definitely connected not with Jerusalem, but with definitely the cities of the nations. And so I see this part of the verse connected to these cities that are collapsing. And then in particular, God is saying, listen, I remember Babylon, you know, and they will experience the cup of my wrath. And the key thing I think going on here as well is this idea of remembrance. But do you, under, up until this point, do you understand where I'm going with this? So again, my argument, again, not saying I am, I am dogmatic about it, is I think the first part of this verse is talking about Jerusalem. The second part of this verse, which I am dogmatic about, is talking about the cities of the world. And the third part of this verse, Babylon the Great, is really connected to the second part of the verse, not the first part, is really describing one particular, perhaps, city or a type of city, which actually we'll be talking about a lot more in the interlude 
coming up in the next two chapters. So I see this as bridging uh, this section of, of this chapter and then the interludes coming up in the next chapters. We're getting a little taste or a preview of what's to come. But this idea of remembrance is also a really important concept in the Old Testament as well as in the New. That God remembers, right? Moses in particular, right, in the Torah says, remember, right? He says to these people, remember this, remember what you did, remember what your ancestors did. It talks about later generations not remembering, right? The Pharaoh in Egypt is described as what? Not remembering what Joseph did for the Egyptian people, right? That opens the book of Exodus. But God remembers, you know, God, there's also the idea of God forgetting, right? Choosing to forget, which is a whole beautiful picture of his mercy. But God remembers a lot of things, a lot more than we do, okay? And this idea of remembrance here is connected to this Old Testament concept of remembrance, which is God remembers nations, peoples as a whole, individuals, what they do for good and what they do for evil. God remembers the good that people do, and those who are believers will receive their treasures and rewards for it, right? Messiah Yeshua especially talks about this, right? What you do in secret, God sees, and he will reward that, what is done in secret. Um, But God remembers for judgment as well. Um, And so the concept here is, you know, all these cities, all these people groups, secular nations, If we want to go with the modern day, we could talk about China, Russia, Hamas in the Middle East, America, Canada, Mexico, any of these nations. Okay, We like to think that because we are not suffering, I'll take America, right? Let's let's just talk about home base here for a moment. We interpret wrongly, I think, uh, financial prosperity economic prosperity as always a sign of God's favor, right? Is And we also conversely can sometimes misinterpret that, oh, well, if you're suffering economically, if, if things are going bad in your life, that must mean that God is judging you. Now, Scripture makes it very clear it ain't that cookie cutter, okay? But we like to interpret that because America is doing great, maybe economically or our nation is doing good in some way, that means God's favor is on us. If God was really angry with us, why wouldn't he do something about it? Well, this passage, this verse, this part of this verse, and as we've seen in all of Revelation, we're going to see going forward, is God does remember. Okay? But God chooses when to pour out that cup. Right? And that's described in this verse. I'll go back a page here because that's where I have it written down. Right? It says specifically, gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. God chooses when to give out or pour out that cup of wrath. And here in these plagues and here in this moment, especially in the seventh plague, God has chosen to pour out that cup. God says, I haven't forgotten what you've done, but I was waiting until the right moment to deliver the right punishment to you. And that is what we're seeing throughout Revelation, but especially here in this last bowl, the cup of God's wrath. You don't want to drink from the cup of God's wrath. I hope that's not a controversial statement to make. You don't want to experience these things. And again, 
This isn't the first seal. This isn't the second seal. This isn't the first trumpet. This isn't even the first bowl. This is it. This is the final. Okay, this is the final bowl. This is it. You know, when God struck, again, going back to the typology and parallel, when God struck Egypt with ten plagues, the most terrible plague, the death of the firstborn, was the final plague, not the first. And in the beginning, Pharaoh could have turned away. And God, of course, foreknew what Pharaoh was going to do. You know, and again, it's a whole discussion of free will and all that, yada, yada. But the point is that Pharaoh, after that first plague, could have gone, you know what? Seeing the entire Nile River turn to blood is enough for me. You Jewish people, you can go. Bygones be bygones. Thanks for 400 years of service. We're done here, right? But no. Arrogantly, he assumed that his power would endure. He didn't think he would collapse or his nation would collapse. These nations alive at this time, again, remember where we are in Revelation. We're at a time period now in Revelation where the nations of the world are united against God and Israel under the Antichrist in a one-world government. They have worshipped and taken the seal of Satan upon their bodies. They have assumed wrongly that the beast, the Antichrist, the false prophet are more powerful than God himself. And they are learning a very hard lesson that they are very, very wrong. And God, just as he crushed the arrogance of Pharaoh in Egypt, which was the superpower of their day, a Babylon the Great, if you will, so God will crush the nations and peoples and cities alive at this time in an even more severe way, because we see an intensification going on here in Revelation. Does that make sense? All right, got on enough sermon there, but we're going to get back into it. Verses 20 and 21, ending the chapter here. So again, more ramifications. Every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. Verse 20. From the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about 100 pounds, fell on people. And they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. So again, worldwide consequences going on here in verse 20. The very land of the earth itself will be changed, right? This event changes the topography of the entire earth. Entire islands will be swallowed perhaps by tsunamis, or shaken and destroyed from their foundations, right? If you know anything about islands, you know, again, I don't, I don't pretend to be a geology expert or anything, but from my understanding of islands is they, you know, are plates, right? They, they pop out from the earth, right? They go down very deep, just like our land does. But, you know, a worldwide earthquake that has never occurred before or since could literally destroy the foundations of islands, literally causing them to slide perhaps into the sea, or maybe it's a tsunami, or maybe oceans go up, or maybe it's literal tectonic plates being smashed together, which, you know, the fault line, earthquakes come from fault lines and stuff. We don't know the mechanism. We just know the results. Again, Revelation is not a science textbook on geology here, okay? But the point is, is islands are going to be destroyed, okay? Mountains are going to be brought down. Okay, disappearing. Huge mountains, you know. You know, we live in Michigan. We don't really have mountains in our backyard. You know, there's 
know, if you live in Japan, right, you might see Mount Fuji. If you're in, you know, Colorado, you can see, you know, mountains, right? If you've ever been in a place where you can see mountains, you know, they're, they're a fixture of the landscape. You know, imagine, but, you know, it's, imagine waking up one day and, you know, this mountain, this thing that has been there your whole life is suddenly gone, just destroyed. You know, we experienced that with a man-made building on September 11th, right? People live in New, who lived in New York City at that time, all of them, you know, one of the, I mean, there was many terrible things that happened on that day. But one of them was, you know, their skyline literally changed. People would look out their windows and no longer, their entire lives for some of them, they had seen these two towers jutting up into the sky and suddenly they're gone. You know, that's, that's terrible. Those are buildings. Okay, imagine mountains. Again, not just in one city, not in one place, but all over the earth. Complete and utter devastation. But wait, there's more. If that wasn't enough, if lightning and thunder and giant earthquakes are enough, now we talk about the hail. Okay? Um, oh, by the way, I want to make one reference here. Isaiah 2, 12 through 18 especially connects the destruction of mountains and islands with the great day of the Lord. Again, I think in both in Isaiah and here, it's meant to be literal. Now, does it mean every single mountain on the earth will be destroyed? Maybe not. But it means like a good chunk or most of them probably are. And there is perhaps also a spiritual component to this. You know, that, you know, mountains, you know, in some ways, you know, this, these places of high power, again, connecting the cities will also be ruined. Right? Again, just total devastation. So like in Revelation eleven nineteen, hail is experienced coming from the Lord. We see hail in that passage as well with the manifestation of God in heaven. The largest hailstone, I googled this, ever recorded was eight inches in diameter and weighed a little under two pounds. Eight inches in diameter. That's the size of a bowling ball. These are hundred pound hailstones. Okay. You know, again, Michigan, we don't really, I don't know, how many of you have ever experienced terrible hail? Okay, I've experienced it once. I'm in Michigan. I was driving home from West Virginia. This was years ago, years ago. And I was going through Ohio during a tornado, which I didn't realize at the time. Um, and so I ended up, it was one of the only times I ever had to pull off on the side of the road. And the semi trucks were doing it too. When you see the semis pull off on the side of the road, you know, when you're in your little Ford Escort, you pull off on the side of the road too. Okay, you know, and so... Randy asked questions. So they knew it was the power of God? Absolutely, Randy. I believe so. I believe so. They, what's their response? They curse God, right? They know who this is coming from, and they choose to curse him. You know, this isn't head in the sand. Oh, this is just a man-made weather event or, you know, some random thing. No, they know it's God. They absolutely this time know it's God. But uh, going back to the hail, right? You know, and so, I mean, my car, I think, I believe they may have been two inches maybe three-inch hailstones, smashing into my car. I thought my glass was going to break on my windshield. It was terrible. It only went out for like five minutes, thank God. You know, the rain and stuff, I still was pulled over like another half hour. It was like five minutes. It was scary. It's one of the scariest things I've ever experienced in my life. Um, and those were two or three inches, okay? Um, you know, you see, I've seen pictures of hail the size of baseballs, destroying windows, denting the roofs of cars, Killing people. You know, people do still die from hail today. You know, it's rare, but it happens. And here we have 100-pound hailstones. 
Does that mean they're going to be the size of buses or like super condensed and super dense? Who knows? What is known is they're terrible. <laughs> Absolutely terrible. Um, many people, Millie says, a very true statement, large hailstones were in great depth. Absolutely. Okay, 100-pound hailstones, okay, you know, you know that, that can destroy houses. Again, I'm not a demolitions expert, but 100-pound anything dropping from the sky, perhaps reaching terminal velocity, is terrible, okay? People are going to die. Many, many people. Again, more buildings are going to be destroyed. This may be part of how mountains are destroyed. Now, not just the earthquakes, but being pummeled by 100-pound hailstones would definitely flatten the landscape. Um, incredibly terrible. Again, this, this plague recalls the Egyptian plague of hail, but this will be way worse. Okay, in that plague, right, we read that animals, right, died during that plague in Egypt. People died. That was localized to Egypt, really localized to the Egyptian side of Egypt, right? Very minor in the sense of time it took place, area it took place, duration. This is worldwide terrible. Um, and in the face of all of this, people will curse God. That is their response. So the power of God being made manifest is to curse God for the hailstones. There's no ignorance going on here, right? This isn't, you know, they're not going to be like, you know, the Richard Dawkins of this time, Mr. Atheist God, guys, don't worry. This isn't actual hail. You know, this is a hologram or, you know, this is a figment of your imagination or this can be explained. No, they know exactly who is responsible for this plague and they choose to curse God. And that is why I say they can't be saved. What, I mean, at that point, I mean, you got, you got the carrot and the stick. And you got in the stick many, many times over. You know, the people, I think sometimes we have a hard time believing this. You know, as we sit comfortably in our pews here or at home, in our PJs perhaps. You know, why wouldn't you just acknowledge God? You, but human beings are very stubborn. I'm sure you can think of times in your life where you knew the right thing to do that would cause you less pain and suffering. You know, not to be sexist here, but I think men in particular can, can be a little bit more stubborn in this way, but women can too. It's a human thing. Um, but where I can think of times in my life where I knew the easier way to do things, and I chose to do it the harder way because I was mad, and I was going to do it my way. And I suffered for it. Is it really that hard to believe on this intense level after going through it so many times, after being committed to the course, that they wouldn't see you through? A question? So your question is, is, I thought the Antichrist, Satan, and the false prophet were going to convince everybody that they were God. Um, I mean, obviously, Antichrist, right, he's going to be a false messiah. Um, and so and that's true. But it does seem like, and again, it's, you know, Left Behind Time series makes a nice, beautiful narrative, I think, of this in somewhere in one of the books, if I remember right. But there's a shift that happens eventually from, I, I do think there's a shift that happens from, you know, understanding this as God. I mean, they're going to think he's God still, right? Um, but a shift to acknowledging in some way that there is another power out there, and that's the power doing this to us. And again, I lean on this verse for that. You know, they say they're not, they're not, blaming, they're not blaming the Antichrist for this. They're not blaming the beast for this. It says they're blaming God. So 
they know there's a war coming. Now, in some way, the Antichrist convinces them, I got this. I can do this. You know, I mean, again, I, I don't think this is meant to be a direct parallel. I don't think this is meant, but I go back to the Pharaoh in Egypt, right? With those first plagues, what happened? His little, his little magicians could imitate them a little bit, right? They made snakes, just like Moses did. Of course, Moses' snake ate their snakes, but that wasn't important. They made some snakes. They did a little blood, you know. I think, you know, in some supernatural way, Satan's going to be, I mean, again, they take it to the mark of the beast. So in some super, you know, in some way, Satan's going to be exerting an influence over people he's never had before, I don't think. You know, there's, this, is, this is real manifestation of Satan, okay? Um, and Millie says they have the mark of the beast in them, so they can't repent. Yeah. Um, but, yep, so terrible hail and earthquakes. They will curse God and choose to die. Um, so summary and application. Any questions before we go into that? Kim. And anybody online, if you have a question, please. Um, the last Isaiah reference I gave you, and again, I will put this online eventually, probably next week. Isaiah 2, 12 through 18 talks about the destruction of mountains and islands with the great day of the Lord. This is, you know, we've, we've debated, you know, me and Rabbi Glenn, we've talked about this and debated this a bit. You know, is this the day of the Lord? Is this the day of the Lord yet, right, with the seals and stuff? This is the day of the Lord, people. <laughs> this, there is no debate, okay? This, this here... We're definitely in the day of the Lord, okay, going on when this is going on, okay? When the armies are arranging themselves to go against Israel, you know, the world is anticipating Messiah's return at this moment. Um, and of course, at this point, we go into a beautiful interlude to build tension. Um, you know, before it was building the tension between the, you know, the 6th and 7th, this is building tension now from this battle that's about to take place and all of this, which we won't pick up again until, I believe, in chapter 19. Um, we have this interlude that's really important to build the tension of, you know, they're cursing God, hail, earth, right? The armies are assembled. Where's Jesus? Where's Yeshua? Building that tension in the narrative until we get to it. Um, but good question, Kim. Uh, so, summary and application. The seventh bowl of wrath serves as a capstone, not just to the bowls, but to all the other plagues the Lord will bring on the earth with the seals and trumpets. This last bowl has no real equal in human history and will devastate the entire earth. Jerusalem will survive this bowl, but will be permanently changed as a result. The cities of the earth, will, with all their technology and power, will crumple from this display of the king of kings. Like the Pharaoh threw uh, in ancient times, the wicked will remain stubbornly defiant in the face of the Lord's power. As believers, we are called to be aware and awake to these events. I go back, which again, I really appreciate what Rabbi Glenn had to say last week about being awake and clothed. So we're called to be awake and clothed for these events. But we are not called to live in a state of anxiety or trying to see these prophecies as suddenly being fulfilled. Especially now with the war that's going on in Israel, you know, it's like every anytime anything happens in Israel, if somebody stubs their toe, I feel like somebody comes out of the woodwork prophetically stating that this is the prelude to this. You know, this is it, right? This could be the big war. The nations seem to not like it. The UN is not liking it. Could it be? Maybe, maybe. Okay, I won't give you, I'll give you 1% chance. But again, there's a sequence of events happening here. But what I do see this as is typology as, again, as Messiah Yeshua predicted himself, there are wars, rumors of wars, this intensification 
you know, this anti-Semitism towards Israel and the Jewish people. You know, it goes deeper than Hamas. It goes deeper than liberal colleges or Islam. You know, you work your way up the food chain of cause and effect, it goes back to Satan himself, who is working in all these things and is working in these events to bring about his plans, you know, but not realizing or not caring or believing truly he can win, that it's God's plans that are really being enacted. Um, so we shouldn't freak out about this stuff. We shouldn't, you know, um, obsess over trying to connect all the dots on like our conspiracy dartboard here of it. Um, instead, we should remain clothed and ready, close to God and one another, as we anticipate these awesome events that will take place. These things should make us want to be close to God, to be, you know, um, close to him, knowing what's going on, close to one another, preparing one another, saying, listen, you know, there's the good news and bad news. I'll tell you all about the good news. Let me tell you about the bad news. And let me tell you about the bad, you know, you can talk about the bad news of the past, in the past of your life. Let me tell you the bad news that's coming, okay? Because throughout Revelation, one of the two twin great themes, right, is God's reward and blessing and mercy and compassion upon his people and his judgment and his wrath and his righteous anger and the destruction that will bring upon the wicked. You can't, you can't have one without the other. Both are a part of God's nature and character. Both are part of Messiah Yeshua. So one of the great themes of Revelation is the sovereignty of God. Despite the supposed, I think this is, again, if no other point sinks in tonight, this is, I think, so huge in this. Despite the supposed power of kings, presidents, dictators that they claim to have today, and they have some measure of power, okay, all these people do, they are inconsequential in the face of Adonai. Go back to the letters to the seven churches, right? You know, where Messiah writes to, the, to these communities, you're afraid of, you know, the emperor, you're afraid of soldiers, don't, don't be afraid of them. You know, have a fear of me. <laughs> I do much more than people can do to you. I bring greater judgment, I bring greater reward. You know, God is on his throne, literally in this chapter. Where is God? On his throne, declaring judgment. That's the, when you talk about the sovereignty of God, that is a picture, a crystal clear picture of the sovereignty of God. Every nation on earth will assemble to war against Israel. And by extension, Adonai, right? They acknowledge, they're cursing God here in this passage. But on that day, human beings and even Satan himself will be unable to do anything to hold back or lessen the wrath of the Lord being poured out. All they will be able to do at that time is curse the Lord as they deal with the consequences of their rebellion. That's the takeaway. You know, in all these plagues, in the seals, in the trumpets, in the bulls, in this final bull. I don't see any mention of the Antichrist or the beast or the false prophet or nations in any way, shape, or form being able to lessen or mitigate this wrath being poured out. They are completely powerless in the face of God. 
There is no struggle. There is no war. There is not, you know, Satan holding back the hail for a little while until it finally crushes people. or holding back the earthquakes until they finally shake the earth. There's nothing. It's overwhelming, just as it is today for us with our natural weather events, okay? What can you do? If a thunderstorm is rolling through here, what can you do right now to stop it? If lightning is going to strike this place tonight, what can you really do to stop it? If an earthquake is going to happen in the state of Michigan, what can you do to stop it? What can your city do to stop it? What can our nation do to stop it? What can the entire world do right now to stop it? Absolutely nothing. Nothing at all. And that's just regular weather, which is part of the sovereign will of God and the exertion of his power. But that isn't the cup of his wrath being poured out. Okay? You can't do anything with the small stuff. What are you going to do with the big stuff? You know, we, we, we talk about a fear of man. What can man do to us? You know, why should I be afraid, right? King David says, what can man do to me? Now, the, the positive of that is, you know, God is our rock and our fortress. He will shelter us. He'll protect us. You know, we may not be delivered physically, but we will always be delivered spiritually. But the opposite side of that, and the part we always are a little bit uncomfortable to deal with is, what can man do to me? Nothing apart from God's will that he allows. But what can God do to me? A whole lot of stuff. And there's nothing I can do to stop that. You know, against people, we could do some things. You know, people, you know, prep for certain events, right? You know, the cute term is preppers, right? You know, you say, well, you know, if somebody comes out of my property, you know, a human being, I have firearms. If, if uh, you know, the power goes out, I have some meals, some running water. I have ways to protect myself or to survive. You know, to a certain point, events, you know, if I, as long as they don't hit me and kill me in that moment, I might survive. And there's a lot of things I can do to survive people, even governments. Okay, you can prep for all these things. You can't prep for God. Okay, the only way you prep for God is by being one of the righteous. Made right, not because you're so awesome, but because of what God's done for you. The way you prep for God is by believing in his son, who has given us a path to avoid all this bad stuff, and in this letter, in this book, promised us so much good, eternal good. you got to know which side of this you're on. And I think that's the big takeaway here. All right, I'll get off my soapbox uh, here at this point. Any final questions before we wrap up? I know they're going to be coming in here to do some practice. Um, all right, I'm going to judge by your faces in silence that we're good to go. We're going to pray and be dismissed. Again, I will post the notes uh, my personal notes here, hopefully, by next week's uh, uh, Bible study. So, and again, oh, super important. I didn't announce this at the beginning of it online. Hopefully, you guys, most of you online are still here. This is super, super important. Starting in January, the first Thursday, sorry, the first Wednesday in January, we are going to be switching the Bible study to Wednesday night going forward. So, January 3rd, which is a Wednesday of 2024, we'll be meeting here at 6.30 and every Wednesday night going forward. The church that we meet at Bloomfield Hills is also switching back to Wednesdays for various reasons. So we'll be live streaming and be here live in person, Lord willing, every Wednesday starting in January. So please, please note that in your um, calendars. So we'll be announcing again and again, and there'll be some announcements on Saturdays, and we'll send out emails. 
And uh, I'm just, especially for you guys who come in person, I don't want anyone here showing up on Thursday, knocking on the door at six o'clock, peering into a dark building, wondering where everybody's at. So, um, so all right, with that out of the way, um, we'll conclude with a word of prayer. And thank you guys so much for the kind words. All right, Avina Malkino, our Father King, Lord, thank you again for letting us study your word, Lord. I pray that we would properly understand and respect your power, Lord, that you have the power to save and the power to destroy, that you have the power to preserve life and take it, Lord, and nobody can escape from your hand. I think of the beautiful song of Moses in Deuteronomy, Lord. I pray that we would have a fear of you, Lord, which is a healthy respect for your power and your sovereignty, Lord. And I pray that each one of us would know where we're going, to know that we have a place in your eternal kingdom in heaven through your son, Messiah Yeshua, and to know that these things being described in this chapter are not for us, Lord, not for us. And that eternal judgment that will come after this that we will read about, Lord, is not for us either, Lord. I pray each of us would have that saving knowledge through your Holy Spirit, uh, that we are saved and redeemed and looking forward to living with you forever. I pray that if there's anybody here tonight with, with doubts, not from Satan or from guilt, Lord, but doubts of their salvation, Lord, if they have not yet put their faith in you, Lord, I pray that this day they would, that they would have the courage and the boldness to seek you out, to understand not just the power of your wrath, Lord, but the power of your mercy, because we've seen that equally on display in this book, Lord. While not in this chapter, in these judgments, do we see your mercy, but throughout the revelation, throughout your word, over and over again, do we see you are slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, Lord. And I pray that each one of us would experience that loving kindness and not your wrath in our lives, Lord. And I pray this, Meshem Yeshua. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys so much, and thank you everybody online as well.